to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. I am really excited about our episode today, another special episode with an outstanding question to be answered by a real expert. Let's hear our question from Lior Savin. Lior is a college student in New York City, the Big Apple. Hi, Dr. Lev. My name is Lior Savin, and I'm a freshman at Yeshiva University. My question for you is, how much marijuana can someone smoke or consume before it's unsafe to drive a car? Thank you, Lior Savin, for your question. You know, it took many years and unfortunately many lives to have laws that protect innocent people from drunk driving. And yet we still have a problem. And now we're adding the problem to drunk driving with the problem of drugged driving. I work at a level one trauma center and I see the, the, the trauma that occurs when people who are drunk get behind the wheel, but also when people who are using drugs get behind the wheel and often when there's a combination of alcohol and drugs. And even if people have the legal limit of alcohol of 0.08, if you add you know, an opioid or an anxiety pill or methamphetamine or marijuana, you get a situation where you don't want to be sharing the road with this person. Um, so Lior, this all has to do with your question. And to find the expert, I you know, knew exactly where I needed to go. If we think about... Um, alcohol and drunk driving. We think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And there was a very great advocacy group that did a lot to bring that issue to the table. And when we think about drug driving, um, there is an organization called Driving Under the Influence of Drugs, Victim and Voices. And to answer your question, there's no better person than the president and founder of DUID, Victim Voices, than Edward Wood. Ed, welcome to High Truths. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Ed, you um, you started this organization. Um, your own background is in chemistry from Harvey Mudd and an MBA from the University of Colorado. You now live in Colorado and um, uh, you live in a state that is seeing um, problems with drug driving. Indeed, we do. We have more problems than many people realize, it turns out. I'm also living in the uh, winter months in, in Arizona. And Arizona go, is going through an election right now to try to get the electorate in the state to approve uh, recreational marijuana. And as, as part of that, uh, the uh, local newspaper in Phoenix just put out a bit of misinformation on exactly how bad the drug driving problem is in the state of Colorado. Pretty unfortunate, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. Right. So you're, you are an expert now in drunk driving. Um, I saw that you are an author also in the textbook we talked about in previous um, episodes, the Cannabis in Medicine textbook that was edited by Dr. Ken Finn. Um, and you yourself are a victim of a drug driver. Yes, uh, our, our son was killed by uh, drug-impaired drivers about 10 years ago. 
And it turns out that the, there were two women at the wheel at the time, and the drugs involved were marijuana, methamphetamine, and heroin. So it was a polydrug case. It turns out that a great number of the drug-impaired driving deaths and injuries come from polydrug impairment that uh, makes it very difficult to understand really what's going on and what the, what the cause of the crash was. But we do know that polydrugs are generally more dangerous than single drugs are. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry, Ed. Um, you know, may, may Brian, your son's memory be a blessing. And I, I want to tell you that what motivates me to do what I do in my advocacy work are, are people um, like you, parents who've lost children to, to drugs. And, and that's what uh, drives me for the, you know, the rest of my, my career or life to, to do whatever I can to make a difference. Um, my own family... In 1995, we were driving on Interstate 15, uh, and in Victorville, we were hit by a drunk and drive driver, just like you were saying, alcohol and cocaine. Um, uh, the, the person who drove the car was killed instantly. His uh, son was alive. Our car was uh, upside down and turned around. My children, two and four years old, were ejected onto the freeway. My husband and I were hanging upside down and uh, I went into flight physician mode. I, uh, at that time, I was um, a flight physician on life flight helicopter in San Diego. Um, and thank God my whole family was fine. But I commemorate that day um, and really thankful for, for being alive. So, yeah, it's definitely a problem that I think most people are, are concerned about and probably hence the, the issue that you're talking about in Arizona. Since you mentioned that, can you tell us a little bit about that? When we air this, this program is going to be aired after um, the election, but uh, it'd be interesting what you're working on. The Arizona Republic uh, is part of Gannett Publications and also part of USA Today that also picked up the story. The author of the article, a uh, man by the name of um, Ryan Rondazzo, Ryan Rondazzo, uh, wrote that there is very limited impact to either teen usage or traffic fatalities in states that have adopted uh, legal marijuana. It turns out that was factually incorrect, completely false. And he, he based his statement upon two studies. The study for saying that there was no increase in teen usage was based upon a study from the uh, Healthy Kids Colorado Survey of 2017. Interestingly enough, the Healthy Kids Colorado Survey two years later said just the opposite. Now that they had more data and data subsequent to not just legalization, but importantly, subsequent to commercialization when the drugs were actually available more broadly, they found about a 15% increase just from 2017 to 2019. So what he was doing was using, using obsolete data. In the case of traffic fatalities, he was even worse. Uh, there was actually fraud involved here. The case was, uh, he was re referring to a study done by Jason uh, Adelot in Texas, published in 2017. And Dr. Adelot at that time made a number of uh, fundamental mistakes in his study. It was published in the Journal of uh, American Public Health. Um, we had pointed out those, these errors in his study. He redid the study two years later, published in 2019. 
And in doing so, he published that and repudiated his, his prior work, which was the work that was cited by the Arizona Republic. And his new work, he found that uh, when you legalize marijuana in, uh, in states like uh, Colorado and Washington, you increase the number of traffic fatalities between 1.5 and 2 deaths per billion vehicle miles traveled. So in a state like Arizona, that would be an additional 119 traffic fatalities per year. The National Institute of Drug Abuse has it right there on their website, the twofold increase um, in the chances of someone dying uh, when a driver was uh, Mm -hmm. positive for THC. Um, But let's go to Lior's question. She asked, what's the limit? How much can, um, you know, at what point would she feel safe getting behind the wheel if uh, one of her friends uh, was smoking or using an edible Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, drove home after a party. I, I, well, it's actually, very, it's actually a very good question. Uh, it turns out that, as, as we know, with alcohol, the more you drink, the drunker you get. It makes sense that that would happen. The same is true with most other drugs as well. And it certainly is true with, uh, with marijuana. Uh, we do know that the effects of marijuana are indeed dose dependent. Uh, it's been difficult to do these studies because it's difficult to know how much dosing actually has been going to the subject when they are smoking. So much of the drug is lost in sidestream smoke and so forth. So getting dosing measurement studies is quite difficult. But the studies that have been done would tell us that if you have as little as uh, about a third or one half of a current uh, joint, that's going to be enough to cause a fairly significant impairment. Full joint is going to be really quite impaired. Uh, if you were to have a single 10 milligram edible, again, you would be fairly, fairly impaired. What is difficult, though, is that in the case of alcohol, we can measure the alcohol that's in the bloodstream and get a pretty good indication of how much that person has had to drink recently, both how much they've had to drink and how long it's been since they've they've, uh, had that. And the level of uh, alcohol is going to decline at a very predictable rate. You know what that is, about 0.015 grams per deciliter per hour for most individuals. That's not true at all with marijuana. You cannot determine the dose that a person has had by doing a blood sample. It just cannot be done. And we probably ought to walk through a little bit the uh, biology as to why why that is the case. But the point is that you cannot use the blood testing to find out how much somebody has smoked or how much they've consumed with an edible or how long it's been. Alcohol is eliminated by zero-order kinetics, meaning the same amount of the drug is eliminated per unit of time, regardless of how much you drink. About 20 milligram per deciliter of alcohol is removed by your body every hour. So if you start at 80 units of milligram per deciliter hour, it would take about four hours to get to zero. This is a rule of thumb, not an absolute since everyone's a little different. Most drugs, including marijuana, follow first-order kinetics, meaning the same percentage of the entire drug is eliminated per unit at time. For marijuana, at about two hours, 90% or almost all the drug is eliminated out of the bloodstream, whether you had a little bit of marijuana or a lot. So back to Lior's question, how much marijuana can be consumed before it's unsafe to get behind the wheel? If you smoke a joint or even half a joint, you'll begin to feel the effects. And the more you smoke, uh, the, the worse the effects will be. 
And if you were to have a, a standard sized edible, which is a 10 milligram dose of edible, uh, that will also be impairing. If you have a uh, have more than that, you'll be even more impaired. It is it is dose dependent. The the type of impairment for marijuana is quite different than the impairment for alcohol, however. So people may will feel it differently. Uh, alcohol is uh, impairs a good deal of the physical attributes of a driver, some mental attributes, but uh, you you feel it more physically. Marijuana impairment is more a mental uh, type of impairment. Your executive function is impaired. You're unable to uh, collect information around you and to make a, a judgment upon all that information as well as you could if you were unimpaired. So you will get fairly impaired, even though you may not fully feel it. Interesting. So um, you're also a, a myth buster. You, you, you sent me a whole bunch of myths that, that uh, you work on busting. Can I go through sure. a couple of them with you? You bet. Um, one of the myths that you bust is uh, blood testing doesn't work to find impaired drivers because marijuana stays in your blood a long time after you are no longer impaired. Turns out that's not true. Marijuana cannot get into your blood, much less stay there. After all, marijuana is a plant, stem, leaves, and all. What does get into your blood is some of the compounds that are in marijuana. And the compound that we're most concerned with is something called Delta-9-THC or something we'll call THC for short, tetrahydrocannabinol. Tetrahydrocannabinol actually does not stay in your blood very long at all. And the reason it doesn't is that it is insoluble in blood. It's a fat-soluble chemical. So what happens when you put a huge bolus of THC into your bloodstream by inhaling, it, by inhaling a marijuana cigarette or a joint, you dump a lot of the THC into the blood it goes up through the brain. The brain is a very fatty organ, and the brain will very quickly absorb that. It absorbs it so rapidly that within the first 25 minutes after beginning to smoke a joint, the average level of drop from the maximum level of THC in blood will drop about 79%. So with it very, very quickly, your THC is removed from the blood and it goes to the brain and other fatty tissues in the body. Now, what does stay in the blood, and you can see this for a long, long time, is one of the metabolites of THC. And there are a couple of interest. One of them is, is called uh, carboxy-THC, and this is the one that most people think of when they think of the uh, of, uh, metabolites from marijuana. Carboxy-THC is non-psychoactive. There's an intermediate uh, metabolite called hydroxy-THC, and that's very, very impairing. The uh, hydroxy-THC does not have a very long life, however. So it's one we don't typically worry too much about, but it's very, very impairing for a very short period of time. After a couple of hours, you generally will find that the level of THC in the blood for most users cannot even be found with normal laboratory methods. But you will find the, the carboxy-THC. You will find the inactive uh, metabolite. And that will stay there for days and weeks. And the reason it will is that even though the THC cannot be found in the blood, it is in your body. It's in the various fatty tissues and it's other kinds of organs in your body. And the terminal half-life of THC is about a little bit over four days. So as that THC is in your body, it'll keep on metabolizing and generating more and more of the carboxy-THC, which itself has a fairly short half-life, 
but it, stay, it appears to stay in the blood in a long, a long time because you're constantly generating it from the THC that remains there for a couple of weeks, even though the THC cannot be found in the blood. Now, it's a little bit different if you happen to be a, uh, a chronic user. As you might expect, when you have a half-life of THC of over four days and you have someone that's using the drug daily, their body builds up these huge stores of THC in the fat tissues. And those fat tissues will get so saturated with THC that they are will constantly try to get rid of it. And they will dump the uh, THC back into the bloodstream after the person is no longer acutely impaired. So a chronic user is going to have a small flow of THC coming from their fat stores into the blood and they will maintain a low level of chronic impairment perpetually until they are finally able to clear the body of THC. But if they're chronic users, that will never happen. So a chronic user is always going to be impaired whether they have THC in their blood or not. Thank you. That That's an uh, important explanation of and, and shows how complicated things are um, because you have THC, goes in the body, their metabolites, some of the metabolites are active, some of them aren't, and and tracking down the levels. And, and I think people really want to make an analogy with alcohol. So for example, you know, we 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 picked an alcohol level 0.08. I mean, that was based on some science, but we had to just pick a number. Patients in my ER are walking and talking at a level of 400, <laughs> um, and and there are others who are clearly impaired with a level less than 80. So we with alcohol, we just we had to pick something. We picked 80, and uh, I think there's a lot of arguments about picking a number for uh, THC. And uh, I think that's the other myth that uh, that uh, while you're um, myth busting is that drivers aren't impaired if their THC blood is below five. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting number that's come up through a number of different theories as to where that number was derived. There was a, a study group out of Europe that was trying to come up with what they called a scientific uh, per se level for THC in blood. And per se level means just a cutoff level, like 80 for alcohol is a per se level. Let's talk a little bit about that first. That's a very important question. Many people believe that if you have a blood alcohol level of 0.08 or higher, that that proves you're drunk, and it does not. State laws are have two different aspects of them. One is you are drunk if you are incapable of driving safely or you have any, uh, any evidence of impairment. Different states have different definitions of what that means, but it's based upon behavioral characteristics. There's a separate statute that sits right alongside the drunk driving statute called T uh, alcohol DUI per se. This says that if you are driving with a blood alcohol level of 0.08 or higher, you are guilty of violating that statute. Well, it's called a per se statute, just by per se having greater than 0.08 you are going to be violating, violating the statute. It does not mean you are drunk, but we'll treat you as if you were drunk. If you go back to the science that was used to determine 0.08, and you're right, there was science that was used. It turns out that uh, people vary in their response to alcohol by a factor of, of about two. Some, some people will be very, very impaired with a small dose of alcohol, and others will not be. 
particularly young men. Young men will be highly impaired with a, a low level of alcohol, whereas somebody who's more mature typically is not. And we have seen that in one study after another. But what we've got is this 0.08 level that was determined for alcohol that is reasonably good. Uh, and the reason it's reasonably good, it's been accepted because of the work that was done by MAD and others, we don't have much tolerance for drunk drivers and we want something. We want something that's gonna be measurable that we can get a, a, a solid uh, indication from a piece of equipment, a scientific apparatus that says little dial that says that you are uh, at 0.08 and therefore you are should not be on the road. We can't do that for THC, although we've tried, and this group that was tried to, tried to do this in, um, in Germany, it was a, a group of uh, scientists got together and they were not testing uh, THC in blood, they were testing it in, um, in plasma. They, they spin the, the uh, red cells out of the uh, blood and they, they found that if you were above about uh, eight to 10 uh, nanograms of THC per milliliter of plasma, but that's about the equivalent of uh, being in violation of the per se level for alcohol. And in Germany, that level is 0.05, not 0.08, but 0.05. So they said about eight to 10 nanograms of THC is about the same as 0.05 for alcohol. They didn't have very good numbers to support it, but it was sort of a gut feel that said, we think this might work for most people. Well, it turns out that eight to 10 nanograms in plasma is about the same as five nanograms in whole blood. So that's where we have the number. Now let's step ahead to the uh, state of Colorado that uh, tried to put in place a five nanogram per se limit unsuccessfully twice. The third time they tried it, the uh, sponsor of the bill changed it from a per se level to a permissible inference level. What this means is that if you were five nanograms or above, the courts may infer that you are impaired if there are other data to support it. If you are below five nanograms, you may not infer that, you have to prove it more robustly. That's really what that means in Colorado. Now we go to the data that we get from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and we're finding a huge number of people that are found being arrested for driving under the influence. We now find that there are more people who are have THC in their blood in the state of Colorado in that condition than have alcohol. Let me state that a little bit differently. We take a look at the DUI, people are being arrested for DUI in Colorado. More are being arrested for DUI marijuana than there are for DUI alcohol. A pretty startling reversal from where we were many years ago. Now, the policeman does not know at that time what the cause of the impairment was because all they know is what the impairment symptoms were. That's what they arrest for. In fact, the policeman does not even know what the drug was that caused the impairment until they get the laboratory results back. And that's about three weeks later. So they don't know that at the time. All they know is this person was impaired and therefore they have to be removed from the road and, and to be arrested. So now we look at those people that are positive for THC that have been arrested for DUI. So we know that they are impaired we found that a little bit less than half of them had five nanograms or higher. A little bit more than half, about uh, 52%, 
had less than five nanograms, yet they were impaired. Well, the five nanogram level does nothing to separate impairment from non-impairment. The one thing it does do, it does the same thing that the 0.08 level does for alcohol. It gives people a number, it gives them some fantasy that says, oh, I'm going to get caught if I have too much. And that's useful. It is useful. It's useful. It's a, it's a deterrent. It's yes. a deterrent. But for alcohol, there's actually some science behind it. For THC, there is none. Right. So that brings us to the other myth that uh, you um, can bust, which is there's no test for marijuana impairment. Uh -huh. Yes. And that comes about from the idea that people are being tested with a, a breathalyzer as they are at the, uh, and the policeman has them blow through a little device. Right. And people think they're being tested. For I, a, I, uh, my my kids won't want to hear this, but I bought them a breathalyzer when they went off for college so they could have one. <laughs> Well, it may not be a bad idea. To, it's still a sense of responsibility. But it turns out when the policeman does that with a roadside testing device, uh, that whatever ev evidence he gains there cannot be used in a court of law to prove that you are drunk. And so it's, it's, it's for the officer's own use only to make sure he is uh, asking the right questions and is, is checking to see all the proper checks and boxes for, for impairment. But... Um, the only thing that proves impairment is either an evidential breath tester that is used in the station house or blood testing. The roadside tester does not work. Wait a second. I thought impairment means your behavior. You know, can yes. you respond? It's, um, you yeah. know, your uh, dexterity, your your mental capacity. It's not a, a number. It's That's not correct. five. It's not one. It's not 10. Mm -hmm. That's so right. is cool. there, so is there a, a, a test for impairment while on marijuana or any other drug. Yes, yes, there are. There's something that's called the standardized field sobriety test that's being used for impairment for alcohol, marijuana, and any other drug. The standard, standard field uh, sobriety tests have been validated for alcohol, but they actually work uh, sort of okay for, for marijuana uh, and, and some other drugs. But there are some modifications to the standardized field sobriety tests that make them work extremely well. The, the tests are basically a battery of, of, of three things that the policeman will do. One is something called horizontal gaze nystagmus, where they will look at certain kind of an eye movement. And that eye movement is very symptomatic of somebody that's being impaired by alcohol. And Turns just to explain that nystagmus means um, jittering of the eyes. You see it kind of going back and forth and the back and forth can be either horizontal or, or vertical and that that's not normal. That, that, is, that is correct. That is correct. The horizontal gaze nystagmus is a, is a test where the officer will move his finger back and forth and watch how your eye moves. If there's some jerkiness, if he's moving it back and forth horizontally, that's a horizontal gaze nystagmus failure. And, or and that's thing. pretty good for alcohol, but I don't Very know good. if it's so great for marijuana or methamphetamines or cocaine. It's not. It's not very good for any of those at all. Right. The other two tests are, are one is called a um, one leg stand and the other one is a uh, walk and turn. And walk and turn is something you've probably seen on television movies where somebody will walk in line heel to toe step by step and then try yeah. to see. If, uh, those are um, tests that you do at the doctor's office all to check your cerebellar um, sure. function. That's right. Walk and turn and one leg stands are very good for, for, uh, for marijuana. 
if you are impaired by marijuana, you will likely fail those. But I'll tell you, there are two more that are being added. One is called a finger to nose. Put your finger to the nose, tip of the nose. And if you miss your nose, that, that's a signal you may be impaired by marijuana. Right, and that's also a cerebellar exam, like the back of your brain um, that checks for balance. Yes, balance is the other one, something called a modified Romberg balance test. So if you add the finger to nose and the modified Romberg balance test to the battery of three tests that are currently used for alcohol, you have about a 97% chance of being able to properly and, uh, and accurately identify somebody impaired by marijuana. It's very, very accurate. And a uh, large number of police forces are now being trained on this, this tool because of its accuracy. And I think that National Institute of Traffic um, Safety, NHTSA, is working on or hoping to test other um, impairment, you know, something with an iPad to, to check your uh, mental impairment as well. And I don't think that that's quite um, out for public use. There are just a, a huge array of different types of devices that are being developed for that purpose. Some of them are based upon an iPad uh, test of some sort where you try to do, solve a puzzle. Some of them you're trying to uh, navigate uh, between two lines. Uh, some of them you're testing a certain kind of eyesight. Some of them you're testing peripheral vision. Some of them you're, you're, you're testing the, the uh, uh, eyelid flutter. Um, so lots of different ways people are trying to come up with tools that will give the police the equivalent of what they have for a breathalyzer for alcohol. Right, and we, we, we can't get that fast enough. So for Lior's question, uh, how, how much, you know, at what point is it safe? What would you answer her? Well, I would say if you have one joint, that's too much. If you have one, one edible, that's too much. Yeah, better to be better to be safe. So I think that that's a that's a good that's a good guideline. Yep. Um, I want to run a case by you. First of all, this is all coming together because we did a, an episode on high truths with our medical examiner, and um, you know he has statistics about um, motor vehicle accidents of various drugs, pedestrians hit with you know associated with various accidents. We also visited a dispensary where the dispensary owner told us about a, a case where somebody uh, bought marijuana from a dispensary and then got behind the wheel and died. And his uh, girlfriend was really distraught and was called, didn't know what to do. She called different dispensaries uh, to get some answers as why this happened. And, um, and this, this dispensary owner had the, you know, nice, I think human decency to, to call her back and see what he could do to, to answer her questions. But I want to, I don't, maybe you've heard of this case. It's Lopez, Lopez versus Nissan of North America. It I'm is. Not aware uh, of that case, no. So you, are you familiar with that one? I am not. No. Okay. So let, let me read it to you and we can like discuss it. Sure. Um, Lopez versus Nissan North America incorporated June 19th, 2015. Sam Williams drove his Nissan in Vallejo, California, and he ran into a sidewalk, uh, killing uh, Rosa Navarro and injuring five others. One hour before this happened, he smoked marijuana that he bought from a North 101 dispensary. Although it says in the legal documents that he they obtained medical records that showed no significant, if any, impairment or marijuana intoxication. And the marijuana was called Romulan, 
and he received a prescription for this marijuana from a Dr. Hillman of Kaiser. Uh, Sam Williams confessed that the effects of the Romulan were different and unfamiliar to him, and he believed it reduced his response time or clouded his judgment on the day of the accident. I think that's amazing because whenever I read legal cases, people say, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty, I'm not <laughs> And this guy said, you know, even though people have said, hey, you went to the hospital, you were not impaired or intoxicated, he said, I didn't feel right. What happened is when he drove, he felt that when he was trying to step on the brakes, there were, um, you know, that's why he su the, the suit was against Nissan. He was not able to do that because of the, the structures in the car and that made him uh, slip. Sam told the plaintiff's counsel that he was suicidal and depressed over the deaths and injuries that he caused. And the case gets worse because Sam did end his life and took his life um, because he was distraught about this. Um, I would imagine he was depressed to begin with, which made him go to this dispensary, but I don't have that. But this is the legal proceeding and um, it's such so tragic um, on, all, on all ends. And I just kind of wanted to hear your reaction about that. First of all, that's, that's extremely sad on both cases. You've got the loss of life of the pedestrian and then the loss of life of the person that committed suicide as well. Just, just one, uh, one correction to the legal description. Um, Sam did not receive a prescription. Uh, doctors cannot issue prescriptions for marijuana. Many people believe they can. They believe that's what medical marijuana is all about. That's well, correct, Ed. And I said the word prescription because that's how it was written in the in the legal document. I'm but sure you and I, but you and I know that you can't get a prescription. Right. He mentions a formulation called Romulan, which I'm not familiar with that formulation of uh, a, a drug. Turns out that Sam was unfamiliar with it as well and decided to drive anyway, which is something that was uh, just a bad, bad, bad judgment. You had mentioned that he felt that he was losing some of his ability to exercise good judgment, and that's with the case here. Since he was uh, getting this uh, as a medical recommendation from a physician, one would suspect he probably was a, uh, what's called a medical marijuana patient and probably consuming this on a regular basis. We don't know that unless it's in the, uh, the documentation for the legal case, but that is most common when we get a recommendation for uh, marijuana from a physician. And it turns out when you have a regular use of marijuana, that does can cause uh, depression in a number of people, make the depression worse. Now, how old was Sam at that time? Does a, I don't know. Younger people tend to be more adversely affected than older people. And suicides are distressingly common uh, marijuana users. A number of my good friends have lost it, children. It did mention somewhere that he was suffering from PTSD. Another tragedy, a person who served our country. Yes. Um, it was from military duty to, to have this happen. You know, my, my reaction is, besides the horrible, you know, it's just terrible all around. I see this as so many areas of prevention. First of all, and we're, we have to make some assumptions, and I don't, I don't know, except for what reading about the case. But he didn't mention anything for pain, so I'm sure his quote unquote medical is probably like depression or anxiety, which is another um, common reason to get marijuana. Um, and I'd have to refer to the American Society of Addiction Medicine statement of, you know, really 
being careful and not using this for acute mental health patients. And that's, it's just a tragedy. Somebody already has a mental health condition and now you're really exacerbating it. Well, it's actually worse than that because what happens is that somebody will be self-medicating with marijuana instead of getting the medication and treatment that may be able to make a difference. It's particularly true of people that are suffering from PTSD, which is a terrible syndrome. And uh, some people believe that marijuana is effective treatment for PTSD, yet the evidence on that says just the opposite. Yeah, so and there's still, every time marijuana them. comes up in Congress, there's somebody who says, well, we need our veterans to do this. And and I'm thinking, oh, my God, we need to protect our veterans. We certainly <laughs> and, do. And not do they, this they, to they them. They definitely need good treatment, and that's that's not what this is. The other thing that, I, that strikes me in this case is the duty of the physician or the dispensary. I mean, when I prescribe opioids or benzodiazepines and they're given by the pharmacist, there's warning. You should not be taking, you should not be driving if you're impaired while taking these medications. And there should be a similar, you know, warning, you know, if you're buying these high potency products um, or even anything over a joint, like you mentioned, anything above that, there should be a warning about, about driving. Um, So, I mean, I, I do think that there is a you know, third-party responsibility by the doctor and the dispensary in protecting the public um, from their patients, uh, you know, who may be impaired. I have that now as an emergency physician. If I'm taking care of a person who has a seizure, I need to report that to to the DMV, not because of my patient, but because of the responsibilities I have to the public um, and to do that. And, and, um, also, if I have someone who's, uh, you know, driving under the influence of, of drugs, I'm not going to, I don't have the responsibility to report them to the police, but I do have the responsibility to, 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 to educate and to make sure there's not third party damage. So that, that's another thing that's just really striking. You'll also find on the opioids or the benzodiazepine that you do prescribe when the patient gets the vial from the pharmacy. There'll be a label right there with the uh, instructions. Uh, do not use this with machinery or operating vehicle or something of that sort. That that's on there. There have been some discussions in trying to put labels like that in dispensaries in Colorado. Turns out that uh, the uh, Colorado dispensaries have fought this tooth and nail. They have agreed in most cases to put up uh, signs and banners and printing information uh, in the dispensary, but uh, they don't. They've not agreed to label the product. Yeah, this one dispensary, and they were very, in, that that I visited, they're really uh, interested in promoting um, some prevention work. Um, we asked them, for example, to put in, put up a flyer from the um, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology on mm-hmm. pregnancy, and they said that they agreed to put that up. And I asked them if they would be willing to put a drug driving poster up, and they said they would. So, um there, I think there are dispensaries who are trying to be responsible, but still, there, you know, it, it's it's a problem. I mean, we're we're well, but they don't know how to be responsible. Frankly, no state has learned how to legalize this drug in a way that keeps it out of the hands of children, and in a way that allows them to take these people off the road. When we take a look at, the, we've done a study on the. Um, 
And I can't believe, I mean, we haven't even mastered what the problems that we have. We haven't figured out how to keep tobacco, alcohol, drugs, or pills away from children. How are we going to now, we're now introducing a whole new thing in a very, and also in a very attractive way to use it. Also, the vaping is, you know, electronics and, you know, things that are attractive to kids. You mentioned at the the outset, uh, the the problem of polydrug impairment, I think that, uh, it killed my son 10 years ago. So and the combination stuff. of alcohol and marijuana is something that uh, few people really understand how bad it really is. A very interesting study come, coming out of uh, Montana found that uh, it was very common to find that people that came home from a bar knowing that they were drunk said, well, I'll sober up by taking the head off the joint. That'll sober me up. Turns out that does just the opposite. The impairing effects of alcohol and marijuana combined magnify one another. So you may have, you mentioned maybe a factor of two, uh, greater likelihood of being in a car crash if you are impaired by uh, THC. It may be a factor of five if you are impaired by alcohol. And if you have both together, it's about 10. And, so. and that that's another area of advocacy is, uh, uh, you know, we have patients come into the trauma center after a car accident. And if they, um, if they, you know, test positive higher than the 0.08 uh, limit, you know, then law enforcement will do their things. If, if they're uh, lower, then, you know, they kind of stop there instead of um, going, continuing and testing for these other drugs that they're able mm-hmm. to. And, and it's, it's, it's not good that they're stopped. They should be actually doing both. They should be testing for alcohol and, and other drugs when there is impairment and not just stop at the alcohol. Um, alcohol is easy to do. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of people who are Im- impaired. I had uh, a lady who um, I'm trying to think of a way to do that, w- which won't violate HIPAA, but she was uh, working for uh, a company and she was using her mar- medical marijuana and she crashed on the freeway and uh, you know she was driving um, a car with the goods that she was working with and they're all over the freeway um, and nothing will be she was clearly impaired and she was talking slow but you know I you know I didn't have the nice stagmas, but she was impaired, and and that's not going to go anywhere. One of the things I wanted to point out, you had mentioned that it, how important it was to, in cases like this, to test the driver for alcohol and drugs. That is being done in some cases. The state of Washington has made a practice for many, many years. In cases of fatalities, they will test the drivers for a full panel of drugs and alcohol, not just alcohol. And I, they're the only state that I'm aware of that has done that for a period of over 10 years. Wait, that's that's different. Once somebody is dead, they test for all the drugs. I mean, uh, most places around the um, the United States, if you're if you have died and we, we learned this from Dr. Campman, they'll do a full toxicology toxicology panel. That's when things are too late. Yeah, it's required to do that. What Washington has done that makes them a little bit unique is that they have actually measured THC. Many other states, I don't know if all states, but many other states did not differentiate between THC and carboxy THC in the reports that they did in these fatal crashes until recently. Colorado did not start doing that until 2016. So, so you're uh, saying Washington State is doing quantitative? Quantitative validation, THC. validated studies. Correct. 
Oh, very interesting. That is true. Mm -hmm. We did learn that, that we, that, um, you know, at our medical examiner, they're doing only um, the, the quantitative. They're not that, doing, right. And now the other thing is that there's a, uh, the, the legislature in Colorado has finally approved funds to have one of the laboratories, one of the forensic toxicology laboratories do drug and alcohol testing on 100% of all the bloods that are drawn on DUI suspects. So for the first time we now have a very good indication of what the prevalence is of marijuana impaired driving, uh, because now we test for it on about roughly half or thereabouts of all the DUIs in the entire state. We've never That's had that. That's so well, important. Just and is, are these the things that you are working on with yes. your organization, DUID victim yes. voices? You're yes, the other thing we're working on, we're, we're trying to, to, to improve the quality of uh, education for youngsters, the driver's education training. If you take a look at driver's handbooks for most states, they'll tell you, uh, they'll have a chapter typically on impaired driving, and it's virtually all about alcohol. Some of the more advanced places will talk also about drugs, and we happen to have two paragraphs about uh, marijuana in the state of Colorado, and one of those paragraphs is wrong. Are you working on federal or state laws? Working mostly at the state level, because most of these laws are state laws, they're not federal laws. Now that may change, if uh, Congress comes in and decides to legalize marijuana nationally, uh, which would be a uh, a significant problem for, uh, for states and everybody else, they're not ready for it. Can you explain that if, uh, marijuana is passed legally um, on a federal level? How does that change the drug driving responsibilities of the state? Well, it turns out that all states have a requirement that somebody be arrested for impaired driving regardless of whether it's alcohol or drugs. But when a state has such a low level of drug impaired driving, they do not have a high level of training in their police force to be able to detect uh, drug impaired driving. Uh, in, in some states, they have a very advanced group called uh, uh, DREs, drug recognition experts. Mm -hmm. DREs uh, are uh, very, very good at being able to detect not just drug imp uh, driving impairment, but also give you a very good idea of what the drug or drug combination was that probably caused the impairment that's been documented. There's an intermediate level between the DREs and the standard uh, uh, beat uh, traffic cop called an A-ride officer, Advanced Roadside Impaired Driving Enforcement. These people can do the additional testing I was describing as being added to the SFSDs. Uh, they're, they're quite good as well, but they don't have nearly the experience as the DREs. The problem is it takes two weeks out of your job to uh, full-time training to become a DRE. You do certification once a year. You have to maintain your skills by doing a certain number of DRE assessments every year as well. It's a I think that sounds worth it. We need more DREs. We I'd rather have more DREs than, than getting a speeding ticket. Um, yeah, we need more DREs. That's true. But that won't solve the problem. Uh, because once they have the DREs, then they go to court. And they have to prove that these people then are impaired. In Colorado, where we have a good number, you know, well over 200 DREs in the state. They're, they're it's a pretty good number, readily available. We find that we have about, an, uh, about a 90% conviction rate for DREs if the alcohol is involved. If drugs are involved, it's about 80%. If marijuana is involved, it's about 60%. Unless they happen to be below five nanograms, that's about 15%. Mm. 
That's interesting. I was an expert witness for a drug driving case of a person using methamphetamines. And I uh, showed the jury a, a chart of what, how much methamphetamines in your system for if you use like an Adderall or a a medication, very long, how much you have if you're dead, like a a lethal dose. Mm -hmm. And his dose was in the middle. That's just dosing. Um, And they did not have a DRE on the case. They just have description of his behavior that that was kind of erratic at the time. Um, and that his blood was drawn, you know, several hours of the incident, and it was still that high. And uh, it was a hung jury. Then my my testimony wasn't good enough. <laughs> Let me give you a personal story. In the case where my son was killed, there was a uh, a DRE on site right away, and he did what he could. However, both the driver and her passenger, who were she were they were both at the steering wheel at the time. Both of them were injured. They were strapped on backboards, spine damage, and hauled off to the emergency room. When you do that, you cannot perform most of the steps that are required for the DRE assessment. There are 12 steps. You can't do those. Now, it turns out that there is a requirement uh, in the state of Washington imposed by their Supreme Court. It says that a DRE can only testify that somebody was impaired if they do all 12 steps and in order. That cannot be done in that case. So the DRE was unable to testify. I'm so sorry. So these are the things that states are going to have to deal with. Most states do not accept DREs as uh, qualified experts. They have to be qualified on a case-by-case basis. That's very, very expensive and very difficult to do. Right. It's not the end-all. I mean, right? It's a tool like anything else that we have. It's a good tool. tool. It's one tool. We need more tools. That's right. Well, or just don't don't legalize it. If you have any THC in your blood at all, that should be a cause for a violation, in my opinion. Zero tolerance. I think that'd be hard for people to to pass. Why do you say <laughs> that? Right, right. I mean, they they don't want zero more than zero for alcohol. I can't see people going for more than zero for THC. Um, but there has to be some common ground. We have zero tolerance for alcohol for all people under the age of 21 in all states right now. Yes, that's true. You do. Or you don't get your driver's license. And we, and we um, have, so you're uh, saying that we don't have that for, for children right now? Well, we don't. We, we do have 16 states that have zero tolerance for various drugs uh, for driving right now. 16 states already have it. Some of them have it for, for THC. Others do not. state of Washington has a five nanogram per se limit for uh, THC. But they also have zero tolerance for THC for those that are under 21. Now, it's not a uh, uh, misdemeanor. It's an administrative license revocation, but they, may, they do enforce that. That, that sounds smart. I, I want to just emphasize the, the poly drug thing. I, and uh, I, again, it's, it's not just marijuana. It's alcohol, opioids, benzodiazepines, cocaine, meth, marijuana. These are all additive. They, they're all central nervous system depressants that are additive. I had just this week a gentleman whose alcohol level was less than 0.08. And with us, it's like, okay, time to go. Uh, sober enough to leave the emergency department. And he couldn't get out of the gurney. He could not stand up. But he took some 
what he thought was Xanax tablets. Um, turns out he tested positive for cocaine. But these things are additive. And again, as a physician, this is a, a clinical uh, kind of like you say, it's not the numbers, it's the behavior. Um, the behavior to be able to get safely out of the emergency department is to be able to to walk um, and not fall down and be able to talk sensibly and not really cause another accident or get injured again. Because um, mm -hmm. otherwise we would be liable as physicians for letting somebody like that go. So we use you're clinically sober enough to leave instead of a number. Um uh, so uh, again, things are, things are, are additive, um, and, uh, it's best not to get behind the wheel if you're using any of these drugs and they, all the drugs cause judgment impairment. So you, as a person using them think, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. But you don't really realize or see what other people see in you, which is, you know, you're not quite talking right or walking right or talking really slow or, you know, not, not alert enough to be behind the wheel. Walking too slowly or too rapidly or giggling or whatever it happens to be. Lots, lots of different symptoms. Yeah. Some of the, these drugs uh, act in, you see, an additive fashion. Some of them, we have some indications, uh, depending upon what the measure you're using, it may even be synergistic. Yeah. Maybe two plus two may be more than four. It may be Maybe six, maybe eight. Absolutely. That's that's well said. One thing I want to point out is that there was a, a recommendation coming from NHTSA. If you feel different, you drive different, pretty good idea. In this case of Sam that uh, killed somebody and then went on to commit suicide afterwards, he felt different. You feel different, you drive different, just don't do it. There is limitation to that advice, however, something called anisognosia. Anisognosia is a case where person taking the drug will underestimate the impact it's having upon their impairment. Very, very common with marijuana. Yeah. So it's a good starting advice, but it doesn't answer the entire question either. Ed, final words of advice to Lior Savin in New York, college student who's concerned about car safety and drugs. What are your words of wisdom to Lior? Let me give her a story of a study that was done in uh, Germany many, many years ago, they were trying to determine how much THC one could have before one was impaired. And they were trying to do dosing of 100, 200, and 300 micrograms per kilogram. Uh, they did it the best that they could in dosing as one, two, and 300 uh, micrograms per kilogram, which is a, a decent way of trying to measure what the dose is. You want to have the dose determined based upon the mass of the individual. And they, they had the studies. They said, yes, as you have 100 gives you, you're impaired. 200, you're more impaired. 300 is even more. But it's still probably not too bad, all things considered. The drunk driver is usually worse. Then they said, let's combine this with alcohol. And they combined it with alcohol, and they tried to tighter the amount of alcohol such that the blood alcohol level was 0.05, which is below our per se level in most states in the United States. They combined the alcohol with 100 100 microgram dose of THC, boy, they're pretty impaired. 200 was way bad. And with 300, they had to stop the experiment because the subject could not even stand, much less drive. Yeah. Don't do that. My, my advice to Lior, uh, 
uh, first of all, good luck in school. You are a smart girl with an incredible future um, that's right ahead of you. And for you to ask this very responsible question, I think uh, just shows your maturity. Um, I have to say that you're in college, so you are probably less than 25 or 27 years old when your brain is still growing. That means you're at a perfect age to study and do well in school and get those uh, synapses and neurons working in that direction and uh, not be exposed to any drugs that can cause addiction. Your, your brain is way more susceptible to drugs than at your age than if you were to try them at mine, any type of drugs, tobacco, alcohol, marijuana, anything. And then the other advice would be just don't get behind the wheel of, of, with somebody who's drinking alcohol or drugs of any amount. You're not going to go and do a little sample or learn all the, the statistics and biochemistry and things that we were talking about in this episode. Just do it. Do it safe and, and take an Uber or a Lyft. It's not worth it. Good advice. Ed Wood, I want to thank you for your expertise here on High Truths today, as well as thank you for your advocacy. You're an example of taking a nightmare tragedy and turning that into your effort to making the world a better place. I know that your son Brian's memory is a blessing and I commit to making his memory a blessing too with the advocacy work that I do. Thank you so very much, Ed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. Thank you so much to our expert, Edward Wood, president and founder of DUID Victim and Voices. To learn more about DUID Victim and Voices, go to their website, duidvictimvoices.org, and you can find Edward's bio and information on our website on hightruths.com. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.